Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to A Pod of Their Own. This is episode 106 of A Pod of Their Own. I am Allison McCaig, and I am joined this week by my lovely co-host, Linda Serovich. Hello, Linda. Hey, Allison. And we are also joined this week by a very special guest. Um, Devin Gordon is here. Devin Gordon is the author of the new book, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports, published in March by HarperCollins. He also recently wrote a piece for ESPN entitled A Fan's Guide to Abiding the LOL Mets. Um, Welcome to the show, Devin. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me so much. I'm really excited to be here. Um, the, The book title is an awesome title as is the title of the ESPN piece. I love both the titles. Um, so tell Pretty us accurate too. Exactly. I can, exactly. I can only take responsibility for the book title. The, the article title, uh, is the editors of ESPN. So credit where credit is due. I'm glad you like both. <laughs> Indeed. They both are, um, especially the book title. They, they are titles that, you know, embody the experience of being a Mets fan. Um, so tell us how you became a Mets fan and how you got to writing about the team. Well, I, I became a Mets fan when I was seven or eight years old. So this was the mid eighties. I was, I was a child of the mid eighties team, the 86 team. Um, and so in, in a strange way, that's always had a slightly warping effect on um, my emotions as a Mets fan. I, you know, I, I, I had the, I don't know if it's the curse or the or the joy of of very early on watching my team winning a World Series, and that always put this glimmer of optimism in me that's been with me ever since. And of course, we haven't won since then. So that's where it began for me. But the reason why I became a fan of the Mets, you know, when you're a little kid, you become fans of things for very silly reasons. You know, if it's not a family member passing down a team to you. Um, or you watching something that happened. Like I picked the Mets because I liked the colors. You know what I mean? I, I liked I liked the blue and orange. And I liked the fact that when I was seven years old, the Mets' best player, their hottest prospect, his last name was Strawberry. Yes, that was so that's cool. why I like Daryl Strawberry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's really like when you think about it, when you're seven years old, a player named Strawberry is so cool that that's enough <laughs> of a reason to root for a baseball team, especially when you consider that the alternative, you know, they were an unpleasant team that were fighting all the time, the Yankees in the mid eighties. And they had these, you know, what I consider to be dull and dreary uniforms. Of course, you're going to root for the guy named strawberry in the blue and orange uniform. It's it, it wasn't complicated. 
And then it just so happened that that's really good and really exciting. And now I'm stuck with it forever. <laughs> and if you like take everything, obviously uh, the on the field experience, the, the Mets make for not a very fun team to root for. But if you take everything else about the personality of the Mets, they are the more palatable New York team to root for because they're just, I see them as the more fun team, like the more, Absolutely. like a lot more personality, um, you know, like, well, they and, can have facial hair and they can have facial well, that's hair, a nice you know, start. I mean, you know, when I look at Yankee fans, you know, and I see a fair amount of them, I know a fair amount of them. I'm allow I allow a few of them to be in my life. And, you know, <laughs> especially, especially this year, they don't look like they're having fun. They never look all. like they're no. having fun. And that is something that I think surprises maybe some people who I think don't quite understand our fan base. I think that they sometimes confuse our torturedness with like the Red Sox torturedness or this, you know, this sort of downbeat negativity. We're fun. Like I, I think being a Mets fan is really fun. Now it is excruciating. It is often humiliating <laughs> and dumbfounding. But it's always fun. Like I, I enjoy this. I'm I'm glad to be a Mets fan versus being first of all, the Yankees winning. We all know that's overrated, right? I mean, they don't they don't win nearly as much as they pretend they do. You know, yes. if they wanna they wanna know what it's like to play in a World Series because they can't remember, we can tell them all about it, right? We've been there a yeah. lot more recently. Yeah. So it's it just it just seems like this universe of dreary mechanistic angry every year is disappointing and you know the Yankee fans are miserable right now that doesn't look like fun they had a nice year I guess <laughs> but it's just it's it's like it's like the condition if it, 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 the condition of a Yankee fan is if winning isn't happening what are we even doing here and right. whereas Mets fans are like well we're probably not gonna be winning so we need to make some sort of existential you know, trade off here. And it just gets to be more fun for us. Exactly. Like, like 2019 was one of the most fun seasons. Yes. Oh, that was in, delightful. In I recent memory. That yes. was such I a fun season. And if if you talk to a Yankees fan and like say and say that, I think they would be really dumbfounded by it. Like they'd be baffled. They'd be they baffled. would think yeah. they would consider it a failure because the Mets went to the playoffs. They can, the Yankees fans consider this year a failure because yep. they got bumped in the wild card game and they barely squeaked into it in the first place. And they were, if you talk to a Yankees fan, you would think that it was like the worst season they've ever had. <laughs> I mean, I think those two seasons are such a fascinating contrast, right? Because 2019 I've often said was one of my favorite baseball Mine seasons too. Yes. As, as a Mets fan. That team was completely delightful. The irrationality, that we watched September. I mean, I remember joking with my friends about setting our playoff rotation. You know, like we knew we were going to make the playoffs. It was delightful. They were, they, it was just an insane season. And I think we finished, I mean, we were in third place. I think we finished what, like 84 and 79. I mean, yeah, like if you just looked at like the that. standings, it could not have looked like a more banal season. And if you were a Yankee fan, you'd look at the standings and be like, how could that have been such a fun season? Look at the standings. It's like Bill Parcells. You are what your record says you are. Yeah, 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 right? How could that have been fun? Whereas, you know, Yankee fans, if you look at this season that they just had, because they lost in the wild card game, there's no universe of possibility in which this could have been a fun season for them because it ended 
in the wild card game. It is by definition not a fun season. Whereas we could have had a blast with a season like that. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. could have been an amazing Mets season. It probably would have ended heartbreaking and excruciatingly. They all do. We priced that in the bargain. Like that is the difference between like the Mets fans. If they had had to watch that Yankee team, they would have considered this season a failure. We would have considered this season a failure, not because we lost in the wild card game, but because that team sucked. That yeah. team was not a fun. I watched some of those Yankee games and I used to text my friends like, how do you watch this team? How do you watch Gary Sanchez? How do you watch him? He is, I would lose my mind if he was our catcher every day. I, I, I don't know if I could get through the season watching him. And they have a whole team full of players like that. So, and like, so if the Mets were in that circumstance, the Mets fans were in that circumstance, we would be unhappy with the season, not because we didn't win the World Series, but because like, God, that team, I just didn't like watching that team, you know? Yeah. And that to me is like a, you know, I think, since you're probably not going to win the World Series anyway, let's use that as a criteria since we're all here to be enjoying ourselves anyway. And, you know, like I think, and I wonder if, if you all agree with me, that was, I kind of think that was one of the big disappointments of 2021. It was like the second half of 21 was just not fun. This oh, was just not that. fun. Yeah. They were not fun to watch. And that was a bummer. It, it was just like a funeral really... march. It was yeah. so bad. And yeah, they, were just, they just looked lifeless. They were just playing yes. out the string. And that's what bothered me about it is like, even if everyone knew that they were heading toward mathematical elimination, they still weren't mathematically eliminated yet for most of the time, most of the tailspin. And they still just like every day looked like they were ready to lose from the start. They just like looked defeated. It was really, yeah. it was really unfortunate to watch. And I think part it of it like, was that they missed Lindor a lot. Not just like, you know, mm -hmm. obviously he had overall a disappointing season, but I think it was just, they were missing his, like he was always like happy to be on the baseball field, no matter what. Yeah. Um, even when the team was losing, he was always like a little bit of spark. And I think that they kind of were missing that um, when he was injured. He has, um, a kind of intensity that they needed. Um, he has a happy intensity, um, but I think as we saw against the the, the, the Subway Series when he um, got into it with the Yankees in the dugout over that whistling thing, yeah. um, that he's he can be a little chippy. Um, I think Jeff McNeil knows he can be a little chippy. Um, and <laughs> I, I think the Mets needed more of that. Um, and they were absent it, as, as, as you pointed out, at a particularly bad time. Right. Like, you know, there's, you know, I wrote a whole piece for ESPN about, you know, sort of sorting through the wreckage of the season, trying to, 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 you know, it was almost like a rationality versus faith conversation where we, you know, was our DNA coded here from the beginning that 2021 was always going to go like this? Yes, kind of. But then there's the reality that, well, you know, we had a bad month because the best pitcher on earth got injured. And at the same time, our most important everyday player got injured right before the most important stretch of the season. And we got slaughtered. I mean, not just like beaten, slaughtered. And at that exact same time, Atlanta blows by us. Like there, there's a very, very basic, simple, narrow baseball explanation for what happened. And it did sort of, to me, expose the, the importance of not just someone like Lindor, but even with, you know, even with him, there just seemed to be a 
element of intensity or focus missing from this team, you know, as, as you're describing them just sort of flattening on the field and almost sort of surrendering to the chaos of what had happened. They were in like, just because they're, they're a bunch of breezy guys. They were, you know, I was around the team that whole month on the field pregame and they were having fun, happy go lucky dudes and not in a way that would make you dislike them. They're trying, they're working hard. They're, they're cool guys. They're fun guys. They like each other. They just, they're missing this intensity. They, 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 you know, like I, I keep thinking about like when you're in high school and you get assigned a project and if you, if your project group is like four of your best friends, you are in trouble. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, this is not going to go well, unless one of your friends happens to be the kind of ass kicking. Okay. We really need to get down to this. Like we need to get an A. If I don't get an A, I don't get to use the car. I don't get to use the car. You know what I mean? Like every team needs someone like that. That's a, that's, that's, it's not, I think that it gets mischaracterized as the team leader. It is a team leader of a certain kind of character. And Lindor, I think is very much a team leader of a certain kind of character. And I think DeGrom by being the best pitcher on earth is a team leader of a certain kind of character, but they're missing. And at that particular moment, to the extent that it even could have been Lindor, he was out. They were missing someone like a Keith Hernandez, who is just says this, this has to stop. We gotta, we gotta get going. You know, Luis Rojas is about to get fired. Like, we have to go. And even the players, when I talked to several of them by the end of the season, you know, were, were kind of um, very cognizant of that. I think, I, I think that they were, I think by the end of the season, they kind of knew what was wrong with them as a team. Most of them did. Some of them I still wonder about, but most of them, I think they knew what they were missing. Well, even like, I remember it was, it would infuriate me in like post game, people were like, oh, like they would ask, you know, well, that was a bad loss. And like, ah, it's just one game. We have time. And it's just, it was just like wishy-washy. No, we're not panicking. I'm like, it's getting like, you know, as Yogi Berra said, it's getting late early here, guys. Like maybe a little urgency would be warranted here. Yeah, there was no urgency. There was no, no. And, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's sometimes as sports fans and as sports observers, we talk out of both sides of our mouths, right? We'll be like, you know, we want them to shake it off, right? Yeah. We want them to be relentlessly positive. And we know as athletes, that's very important, right? Next at bat, next at bat, next at bat, next game, next start, next pitch. That very much has to be their mentality. And so when they're defaulting to that, it's not so much that I, don't want them to be like that it's it's just you, you, you can't just keep doing that you, you know what yeah. I mean you can't just at some point you you have to there's got to be some self-reflection and for athletes in fairness to them for athletes whose mindsets are very much trained this way that's what you rely on that sort of leadership organism um to or your team organism to sort of kick in for is to um, really put the screws down on the, on the guys who do want to stay relentlessly positive. I mean, you know, like Marcus Stroman, um, who I adore, is an incredibly positivity-minded guy to the point where 
if 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 you bring negativity into his Twitter feed or into his Instagram Instagram feed, he'll block you. Like I know people who have blocked him, who have who, who he has blocked just for sort of being negative. <laughs> um, and and I, I I mean that's very important for their mentality as athletes, but I think they're too hermetically sealed and there's too many of them who are too positive oriented. They need somebody in that room who's the skeptic to be like, okay, could you knock it off? Like, yeah, I get it. I know you're positive. You need to, you need to really focus now, or you need to be taking these drills more seriously, or you need to be spending even more time in these meetings, you know, studying these, you know, scouting reports or whatever it is, but like there did seem to be a lack of preparedness, both in terms of the men, you know, the strategic approach to the game, the mental approach to the game, and even the physical approach to the game that I don't attribute to them being lazy or being unprofessional. I attribute to a deficit of leadership culture. And yeah. that's the good news is I think that's very fixable. Um, the big question is, is it fixable by the Mets? Yeah. <laughs> like I, you know, I, 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 you know, it's, 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 um, it, it, it's, it's kind of like um, bringing in somebody with a set of sledgehammers to fix a glass pane. I'm not sure how this is going to go. Well, um, the deadline, um, they did say like they took character into consideration when they traded for when they were making trades or considering making trades. So that's why they got bias. So is it their fault for not addressing it or because, you know, there was the joke on Twitter that like hang the everybody was friends banner from the, from the <laughs> ceiling. <laughs> um, so is it like, is this on the front office? Is it on the players? Is it a combination I think it's almost entirely on the front office. I, I just, these guys are being who they are. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't think that you can bring Dom Smith into your clubhouse and be like, I'm sorry, man, you're just not intense enough and you need to flip more tables. He's Dom Smith. He's not going to do that. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, and, and if you, if you wanted that kind of intensity, um, you, you know, I, I'm glad that the, Francisco Lindor is here, so don't take this the wrong way. But if that's the kind of leadership that you wanted, you should not have given $340 million to Francisco Lindor because that's not the type of leader he is. It is also, incidentally, not the type of leader Jacob deGrom is. No. Like, he is not going to be this guy. Not, And that's not just because he's a pitcher who pitches every five days, so it's never the starting pitcher. But even in, in terms of his character, he's just not that guy. Like he's not going to stand in the middle of the room and tell everybody to get their crap together. That's, that's not DeGrom. So it has to be on the front office. And whenever the front office says that they're making evaluations based on character, I start to wince because this does not appear to be their strong suit, right? Like I think they've botched a lot of leadership issues. And you know when we're talking about the players feeling defeated, down the stretch or um, just sort of resigned to this sort of shrug, we're just going to have fun kind of thing. Part of that is their character. Part of that is a lack of leadership in the clubhouse. And part of that is them looking at this front office being like, you got to be kidding me. 
Yeah. What the heck is going on here? How are you guys looking at us and pointing the finger at us? You fired our hitting coach and replaced them with somebody who's telling us to do the exact opposite stuff. You've never wanted the manager you gave us. You keep going through general managers who be, you know, who behave like, you know, creeps, just flat out creeps. Can you please hire a non-creep to your front office? And then after you say you're not going to hire any more creeps, please don't go after Trevor Bauer next time. Like they were clearly, and I got the vibe from every Met I talked to over those last few weeks of the season. And, you know, more than a few of them said it just straight out. This was ridiculous. How are we supposed to respect a front office that's knocking us for compliance issues? And the guy who says it goes out and gets busted for a DUI on his way home from a party at the owner's house. Like, yeah. who are these guys who tell us to be more professional? Although They're it just not got doing leaked. their jobs. It just got leaked today that the Mets were very impressed with Zach Scott. So, you know, I mean, it's look, it's one of those things. Um, Zach Scott may have done a very nice job, right? Like, yeah. I mean, in, in terms of his acumen as an acting GM, he may have done a very fine job. If they think that that still matters given the ways in which he clearly did not do a fine job, right? In terms of, let's say, compliance issues, politely, that he still has to deal with in the court system. And even in terms of saying compliance issues the way he did, you know, throwing the team under the bus, throwing the players under the bus after a season like this of chaos in the front office, it just, you know, it. the players feeling clearly just felt on an island and that their, you know, their affection for each other was their refuge, right? I mean, I, I kind of understand why they turned inward and tried to stay so positive because of what was going on around them. The problem is they just weren't playing well enough to tune stuff out like that. Like they needed to be shook and they just refused to be shook. And now here we are. Yeah. So were they doomed from the beginning because they, this was always going to be like a transitional year for Cohen and his front office and obviously having to fire a GM early into the off season. Was this, yeah. was this the way it was always going to have to be until things settled down? Well, I guess it depends upon how we're defining transition year, right? I think in retrospect, I think we need to look back and say, look, this, this team is not winning a World Series. This team is not going to the World Series. But could this team have, you know, played in the wild card? Sure. Could this team have, you know, gotten thumped in the NLDS by somebody? Yes, probably. You know, it, 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 the, but the reason why is not because this team was in good shape or was ready to be a World Series champion. It's because it was a semi-okay team with some nice players who had a transcendently great pitcher to paper over everything. So I guess in some ways, it was always going to be a transition year in the sense that we were never really going to be a World Series contender. That being said, we probably could have disguised it with a nice little fun playoff trip because of DeGrom. And it's almost... It's like when DeGrom got hurt, and then especially when the door got hurt, kind of exposed the team for what it really was, right? Which was just 
Nah. You know, I, I know the team ended. What, what was the final record? 77, 80, 85, something like that. Like, it, it, they I think that they're really. better than that, than the record. Yeah, yeah. They, they kind of swooned at the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I honestly, I mean, I know this is a little delusional, but I kind of feel like they were a 500 team. That yeah, they basically were. They were a 500. Yeah. And yeah. that, you know, if, 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 the, if the sort of the shuffling of the injuries had gone a little differently the last three weeks, it just wasn't, the, the last three weeks just, you know, it, it was like, they were just circling the tub and that's probably you know that's probably how we should be looking at the team absent jacob de and absent maybe francisco Lindor. everything else yeah you got a 500 team you're working with a 500 team which means you're a long way from being a world series champion right and so i guess in that regard yeah you probably should have i think that's fair to say right like he's a new owner steve cohen's a new owner and he's not even sure about the manager he's got, right? Like for a variety of reasons, he is spends a, a season of, of let's see with Luis Rojas, right? Which I don't know necessarily would have happened under normal circumstances, non-COVID, all that stuff. I mean, you know, like Luis Rojas was never supposed to have this job, right? He was always sort of kind of a well, I don't know. Let's see if we stumbled into something here kind of situation. So like, it's funny of all the people I hold responsible for this, I hold Luis Rojas the least responsible, even though he's the one who got fired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know how you can, like, was he a particularly good manager in my view? No, no but no, is, no. is it his fault? This team was bad. Also? No. no. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I like, I don't feel like he should still be the manager. Right. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. but I, but that's a different thing from thinking that this is even remotely his fault. Um, I think he was a little in over his head as a manager and not ready to do it. And I, and I, you know, that can come across as a very, like sound very callow, but like, it seemed like Rojas almost didn't have sort of the structural experience tricks of the trade you know like it's almost like managers come in who, with a system we're going to do it this this way this is our schedule this person's going to be in charge of this this person's going to do this and we're going to work on this and and it's very structured right they come in with a system and everything we wrong is kind of loosey-goosey you know guys are just you know like it's a very interesting thing to watch this met team take sort of its pregame warmups and watch. I was covering the Toronto Blue Jays at around the same time for ESPN. So I was watching a lot of their pregame and Red Sox, Cardinals, you know, wherever they were playing. And look, nobody's like going pedal to the metal, right? I don't want to like, you know, make it seem like, you know, the Blue Jays were doing some kind of drill sergeant routine, but they're working on stuff. They're focused. They're, taking the process seriously they're taking the routine and muscle memory notion of this seriously and you know dom smith's taking grounders at shortstop and kind of goofing around and the drills that gary d is doing with them are more like games you know like hey i'll give you you know i'm gonna find you 10 bucks if you pull me off a second base you know it's like what are we doing here <laughs> like like is this a job or is this summer camp and it felt like 
that was sort of that was sort of a reflection of the Luis Rojas players manager way where I, I don't know that that was necessarily personality so much as just lack of structure, inexperience, not working on stuff. And, you know, he, he wasn't supposed to have the job, right? <laughs> so <laughs> he wasn't supposed to have the job. He only stayed in the job longer than one year because it was a shortened season and a new owner took over. They couldn't really do a hunt. So they were like, all right, well, like the guys like this guy. So there's no good reason to fire him. Let's just stick with him, see what happens. And so for about three months, it looked like it might work out great, right? Like people were talking about him as a manager, manager of the year candidate in the summer when we were holding like, yes. that, was always, <laughs> that, that was always crazy, right? With Mets fans, like whenever I would see that, Mets fans were like, what? But like still, like in the middle of the season, he was, I even I was like, look, you got to give it to the guy. He's He's, he's handling it really well. And now look where we are. Well, is that because like you said, the players did love him and, you know, they, they talked openly about, you know, how much they really liked him. And um, I know Syndergaard was one. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that part of it that he was too close to us? Like he had these players when they were in the minors, like he was, he pretty much, you know, saw them grow up basically through the system. So was he too close to them? Maybe Probably. he was more their friend than their manager. I think it's probably more like, um, you know, I think that they probably had a coach player relationship with him already, but that's a different thing than being a manager, you know, at the big league level yeah. and being a player for them at that level. That, you know, that is a much more um, hierarchical on a minute to minute basis dynamic. And if you've had that kind of dynamic with these, you know, if you've had a different dynamic with all of these guys for so long and it's working, they like you and you're winning games, you're probably not, it's probably not going to change. And it's going to be very hard for you to communicate with them any other way. I mean, you know, like there is this sort of interesting irony about how much the players really liked Luis Rojas, which I believe, I don't believe that that's insincere remotely, but at the same time, they really kind of rolled over down the stretch for this manager that they supposedly love, knowing that it was definitely going to get him fired. Right. So that's, a little bit hard to square. And, you know, if I'm sort of examining maybe a little bit too deeply on a psychological level, what I think is happening there, I think part of it is just, maybe they know what we know, which is they really like the guy, just wasn't a good manager. And that's, that ex- that would explain a lot too, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the opposite of Terry Collins. Like he squeezed the most out of what he had with those teams. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't, I'm going to say again, he, he maybe wasn't the best tactically and I would never want him managing my team again, but it, they played hard for him. I heard him. Um, I can't remember where it was. Maybe it was on SMY. Was, I caught a clip of him talking about clubhouses and, Oh, I know what this was. He was talking about my story on SNY because they oh. were asking him about they were asking him about um, 
and the absence of it on the Mets. Um, and Rojas and what his role in that, you know, sort of missing equation, piece of missing piece of the equation is. And one of the things that he was talking about was, you know, I had deputized leaders on the roster who were responsible for certain, for kicking ass on certain things. You know, you're the guy who makes sure this happens. You're the guy who makes sure this happens. You, you know, like, and, and, you know, and it's sort of, that's the sort of thing that would get me thinking about structurally. Does Rojas, did Rojas have almost like the managerial techniques and structures and skills put in place to help him get that kind of um, accountability that the Mets just seem to lack top to bottom and that he couldn't seem to generate. And it, and it sounded like Collins was sort of saying, well, look, these are grown ass men who are getting paid way more than me. I can't make them accountable on my own. There has to be internal accountability, but I have to create a structure and a system by which that can flourish. And it doesn't sound like that ever happened. So I don't know what that means in terms of who comes in next, but, you know, look, we got a lot of front office holes to fill. So it's like, you know, the good news is the Mets can, can rebuild leadership in a lot of ways here at every level, right? Front office, manager, clubhouse. Um, I hope that's what they're thinking about. I just, I just don't know how they view I, I'm not sure I trust their judgment when it comes to leadership, right? I mean, why would we? And I appreciated the fact that in your story, you called out the Trevor Bauer thing specifically um, because it's it, it all just demonstrates a a very much a lack of judgment of character. And that's been a problem with this team the whole time. And if the, it's the same people making these hires, right? So how how can we expect that it's not going to be a problem moving forward? But um, I guess if you had your way, Devin, like who would you like them to go for, for these, to fill these vacancies that they have? Is there a particular direction that you think they should go? I mean, my litmus test, I know this will never happen, but my litmus test for each of them, if I got them in the room, my first question would be, would you ever have gone after Trevor Bauer? And if the answer yes. is yes, leave the room. Preach. Like, <laughs> yeah. like it just, that like, that was the worst moment of the season for the Mets. And it has never been properly reckoned with. Um, it's, it's this weird sliding doors thing that happened at the beginning of the season that, you know, not only reflected horribly on a front office that at that very moment was pretending to have learned the lessons of Jared Porter and Mickey Calloway by going after Trevor Bauer. But like, I just... Like, I don't think there has been any proper acknowledgement in the front office and maybe even by Steve Cohen, how catastrophic it would have been for the franchise and specifically for Steve Cohen's ownership if Bauer had been in a Mets uniform when that news had broken of those disgustingly violent incidents that he's had. Can you imagine if that, if that happens and Steve Cohen 
who's already had all these problems, spent the off season dealing with these issues and talking about how they've learned their lessons. The first, like <laughs> the first big thing that he does is Trevor Bauer and it blows up and it, like it would have ruined him. He would never in his entire ownership have erased the stain of that. Never. And I just, I don't see any sense that they've made any, um, they've even reckoned with that at all. I mean, Terry's answer, Terry, sorry, Sandy's answer when I asked that question at the press conference was stunning to me. Yes. It was stunning. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, it was a, you know, I didn't ask, answered a, he answered it in the past tense saying what they had done, even though I had asked a forward-looking question, which was saying, are you going to do anything next time? You know, the, in fact, I, I can't remember exactly how I phrased it, but I say, are you going to, you know, think twice about going through red flags next time? And he just went back to the process that they used. Yes. And about how good they, it is. How yeah. good it was. Apparently it's insisted, not good though. Hey, hey, look, they asked some women, some women about, about Trevor Bauer and the women we asked, they gave the thumbs up, you know, like, and but then was he said, his and then, agent. It was my big question. Yeah, was it his agent? Like, I mean, but the, the, the good news is it didn't happen on our watch, which is his final quote on that is just something I'm, I will, uh, uh, I'll, I'll remember. I, I just couldn't believe, you know, if, if your view of, if your final view of what happened there is sure dodged a bullet. Yeah. Like you're already, me... you're already fully acknowledging in the quote that it is just due to luck that this is not you. Yes. And you don't see luck. the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was so, but like, but that being said, to circle back to the question you actually asked about who I would like the irony here is if he if, if he shoots the moon and gets Billy Bean and just gets out of the way <laughs> then we might be fine you know what I mean it's yeah. like if he hires the right next person just because he's finally the person with the juice to get Billy Bean to leave Oakland finally Look, we may we may just we may have just lucked into a solution. Beyond that, I, I have to plead a little bit of ignorance. I just I don't I don't really know. Um, I don't you know I've heard uh, was Paul De Podesta. I've heard his name. Uh, I, I I I assume I know everybody wants the the Milwaukee guy. I assume he's not going to be able to talk to us again. Like I don't you know I don't see why that would change. Um, but beyond that. I guess I'd be I'd be lying if I said I really know um, enough about the candidates. So to me, it's more about the criteria, which is I want somebody who looks at character and understands what the right version is. And by the way, the irony is Francisco Lindor is the perfect Simon. And for that kind of attitude. And because Francisco Lindor, they made that trade and they signed him before all the Trevor Bauer Michigas, I was able to delude myself briefly into believing, well, yeah, they really have figured it out because Lindor is a guy who represents all of the things that we should want. And by the way, having talked to him, watched him, he's going to be awesome in New York. We all know I'm this. so excited. <laughs> we all know this. He has the perfect personality for it. He's funny. He's delightful. 
He knows exactly how to handle a tense interview or moment. He's just, he's like a politician in that, and in a good way. He's like a superstar athlete who's got that politician shine. He's, he's perfect. Yeah. He's if awesome. I can, if they can, if you can promise me that they will find more people like that, you know, I think like in some ways, I think that the Trevor Bauer thing was them misreading um, intensity and guts and grit, right? Sometimes when you think you're getting that, somebody who's like a, a brawler and won't back down from anything, sometimes you're getting Keith Hernandez. Sometimes you're getting exactly the thing you want. And sometimes you're getting a creep who's just a jerk. And that's what Trevor Bauer was. They just misdiagnosed the intensity that they were getting. They were getting the wrong kind. And so I don't know. I mean, wouldn't, how would you feel about Billy being? I, it's hard to say because it's, it's kind of like, it's one of those things again, where it's like the, the organization clearly needs to go in a different direction and you're going to hire the guy who is Sandy Alderson's mentor more or less. Like, so like, it's not that I'm like, I think that Billy Bean's very good executive, but yeah. it's kind of like, is it, is he the right guy to like, they're, they're going after a, you know, and I mean, I, I know that they already had a conversation with Theo Epstein and it's not going to be him, but they're going after these guys who were the mentors of the guys who have been yeah. failures. And so yes. I'm kind of like, is this really the answer? here and the other like names that we've heard other than Stearns who I agree with you is probably not going to give them an interview like they're not going to get an interview with him um the other guys that they seem to be talking about now are like guys connected to the current Dodgers front office and like lower roles who they would like promote um which is like okay the this is the this is the front office that actually signed her exactly yeah so (laughs) so, higher than because those are the ones who actually got power so like we didn't so like none of their like none of the like rumblings indicate any sort of like departure from their current mindset which is you know upsetting to me (laughs) think about when you approach this about how on on a human level when you've got to hire someone you need to choose someone you know you you hire from the people that you know or have access to or who are somehow in your network you know you either know them or you know someone who knows them or you know someone who knows them who knows them right is sandy alderson going to know the people who should be the next Mets gm right or is or the people that he knows and have access to is he just fishing in the same pond and maybe he'll catch a good fish I don't know anything about Billy Bean in terms of his um, um, managerial and uh, executive abilities in terms of running a front office that's not filled with creeps. Um, I don't think that's been a problem in Oakland, but maybe we just wouldn't know because it's Oakland. And we don't um, know what Billy Bean will do with, with theoretically with lots of money. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. it's like, oh, the we, what we know about him is based on Moneyball, right? And like him kind of inventing this style of like re- heavily relying on analytics to get the most out of the least. And like that is, that doesn't excite me as, as uh, running a team, a big market team. 
Um, Mm -hmm. to, I I don't want to see him like pinching penny, like, yeah, cool. Again, like hang the, everybody was friends banner, hang the dollars per war banner or whatever. (laughs) I don't want, I don't want to be the Tampa Bay Rays. (laughs) Like I know that the Tampa Bay Rays are really good. Um, I understand that. Um, and I know people really wanted Heim Bloom to be the Mets GM when they were hiring the first time. And it's like Heim Bloom would have traded Jacob deGrom. You guys know this, right? (laughs) Like, I I don't know if I want uh, that. I I have. I have a, a friend of mine is a, um, a Rays fan um, and they are particularly insufferable. Yeah. Surprisingly, because they're, they're so proud of themselves for winning absolutely nothing. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, like, but oh. we were smarter than you though. So, yeah. but they've yeah. still won I mean, nothing. Good for you. You've still won nothing. I mean, look, I understand that you're, you have a good time making fun of me and making fun of the Mets. I'm going to make fun of me much more than you can make fun of me. We have rings, okay? Come back when you've got a ring. Don't like your cute little analytics that get you knocked out of the playoffs early every time. I feel the same way. And I look, I think, I assume um, that Billy Bean would um, would want the job in part because of the, the, the relief of being able to do it this way. Um, but would he, I think, I guess in that regard, my bigger concern with someone like him is the, the sort of turning of everything into a spreadsheet and finding an edge, um, and sort of the, um, the money balling your way to, uh, victory. It's not so much the penny pinching that worries me. It's the connection between him and Cohen that I see there is sort of the lack of the human judgment element when you are looking at a spreadsheet and you're crunching numbers and trying to compile enough runs in your lineup, you know, things like that, you, that is how you make decisions like Trevor Bauer, right? That is how you make decisions. That's how you wind up with jerks on your team or, or quite honestly, how you end up with a, a team, not unlike the Mets had in 2021, and that Billy Bean had at the beginning, which was a bunch of fun guys who could really play baseball pretty well, but were flawed and couldn't really get over the top because there wasn't anyone to really kick some butt there. They were just a bunch of knuckleheads. And so what is his human judgment, right? Like, you know, to me, one of the big questions is Javi Baez. I'm not sure where you all fall on Javi Baez, but, but I, I love Javi Bias. Yeah, I, I would definitely. We, we deeply yeah. adore Javi Yeah, I was going to say, okay. we're pro Javi Bias here. Okay. I, I, I you know, Javi Bias, like at the trade deadline. You guys know that movie, The Christmas Story? Yes. You ever seen that one? Yeah. Like, Javi Bias was like, I was talking about him like he was like the Red Rider BB gun that I wanted <laughs> for Christmas. <laughs> he really was everyone, great. And everyone kept saying, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. You'll sh-. And, and then we got him. And he immediately shot my eye out, right? With a thumbs down thing. But then he was awesome. I mean, he was everything I wanted him to be. And to me, it was kind of like if, if Steve Cohen didn't watch that, if Sandy Alderson didn't watch that and say, this guy has to be on our team next year. I'm going to lose a lot of faith in this front office. Yeah. Because like, look at the things he's doing to win you games. Like I count like five games he won down the stretch just by like taking Being extra base, awesome. doing his crazy slide, just doing the things that he does. 
And, you know, I had like a Cubs fan, you know, another friend of mine is a Cubs fan saying, well, you know, it's going to strike out. A b- I don't care. Everybody strikes out a billion times. Like you, you. That's you, baseball now. <laughs> yeah, basically. You, you, you take that flaw because in a series, like I think about him in the playoffs, he's the classic player you want to have in the playoffs because he'll just, he'll steal you a win. Remember when Randy, was it Randy or Rosarena? He's the one yes. who stole home, yeah. right? Yes. I was like, that's why you keep Javi Baez. Exactly stuff like that. Because he's the guy on your team who will do something like that and just steal the game for you. And those are how you win playoff series, which by the way, Billy Bean has proven himself to not be particularly good at doing. Because you have players who just win games, not because they, over the course of a 160 game sample size, they, they, they net out to a wild card, right? So... If it's not Billy Bean, though, I have no idea. I defer to your expertise. If there's somebody else who you, you, you're you really excited about, um, sure, let's go for it. I'm open. I'm just resigned to it being Sandy until they prove me otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> That's and where I, I'm at right now. I mean, and regard, with regard to Javi Baez, Sandy... Alderson was more, you know, harsh on Javi Baez for the thumbs down thing than mm-hmm. he was on the guys he hired who were creeps. <laughs> yeah, I was in the room for that press conference when Sandy was asked about Javi Baez and his answer was like a gut punch. It was really demoralizing. I I, I, I went in thinking the Mets were going to keep him just because you know, the whole point of having Steve Cohen is that, that if you decide you want the guy, you keep the guy, right? Um, and I left thinking, well, he's gone. Ugh. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why. Like I couldn't, the only thing I could understand, could, could, it almost sounded like the best case scenario to what he said was that he was bracing for some outrageous offer that, and, and I don't know what that would be, but maybe they were just expecting something preposterous that they were just never going to be able to consider. And that's why he was saying that. Um, but it, it, I, that's, I have to hope for that because otherwise it means they're just saying they don't want. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's, that, that is too, that is too uh, frightening to, to comprehend, you know? Yep. I mean? um, so I, 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 I don't know how they're, Gonna, and, you know, they have a lot of decisions of that kind to make where I'm going to be watching because of how this season has unfolded and because it's still Sandy and because it's still Steve Cohen. I mean, you often probably maybe feel the same way as me. I feel like each of these decisions is going to have this character question hanging over it. And what kind of a person do you really want in the clubhouse? And who do you really want on this team? Like, what is it going to say after you spent the summer complaining about quote-unquote compliance issues regarding the physical fitness or injury recovery regimens of some of your hitters if you let Marcus Stroman walk Hmm. when Marcus Stroman is the most relentlessly physically fit guy on your team right ain't no compliance issues with Marcus Stroman He's the, you know, he was the guy that did everything that you wanted him to do. He never even so, got hurt this year. I yeah. don't think he's one of the few no, healthy. Yep. Just awesome. He was the MVP of the team this year, I think. 
Yeah. And so are you going to spend half the season gassing about compliance issues and then offer arbitration to Jeff McNeil and Dom Smith and JD Davis and then let Marcus Stroman walk? Right? Like I'm watching. I don't actually think that's what's going to happen, but if it does, I would it would not be reassuring about their decision-making process, right? And I think Javi Baez is the same way. That's more of a on-field leadership type of thing with him, where I just feel like winning players have a certain look to them. They usually aren't wearing Mets uniforms. You know, like it's the difference between, (laughs) you know, it's the difference between like the Yankees, I feel like have a lot of, productive numerical players, but I don't look at them as having really, really good players, winning baseball players, right? I think Yankee fans would say the same thing. Like Kike Hernandez, I've just been, you know, because I'm in Boston, I live in Boston. Um, that guy just plays baseball. You know, he just, he just wins. And they, Boston has a lot of guys like that. Verdugo is like that. And are the Mets good at identifying productive spreadsheet guys or are they going to sign Javi Baez and Marcus Stroman? You know what I mean? Yeah. I made a joke uh, on Twitter that seemed to resonate with a lot of people because it took off. But uh, I made a joke about um, because somebody said when uh, in the aftermath of Mike Schilt um, being fired as the Cardinals manager, um, somebody said, oh, are we going to find out something horrible about Mike Schilt now? And I said, and I quote tweeted that and said, only after the Mets decide to fill their managerial yeah. vacancy with him will yeah. we find out something awful about him. Because it just it Let's just feels like find out. Yeah, it just feels <laughs> like we're resigned to like, you know, <laughs> hiring dudes who you later find out were terrible. Um, yeah, ask questions later after you're already hired. Yep. So as it, but that's just like the feel that I've gotten during this entire tenure so far of this current um, current leadership. <laughs> it's like really you know. paint a bullseye on the and which is, you know, it's going to really paint a bullseye on whomever they hire to be the next manager. But, you know, I, I do think that that's obviously, you know, a very important <laughs> decision as well. You know, even though I'm letting Luis Rojas off the hook for responsibility of the season, I don't want to be glib about how much a really good manager could help, particularly with a team that feels like what it's missing as much as anything, maybe not the most, but missing as much as anything is just they're adrift and they need focus and they need someone to be pointing them in the right direction. You know, and so a manager could really, you know, mean a lot in that regard. But, you know, one of the things that I think is just fascinating about this off season and the Mets approach to it is just, you know, Sandy is making clear we're going to make a lot of changes, right? Big changes to this team. Yeah. What are, what are the changes going to be? Like, because I look at the roster, and I don't know. I don't. I don't. I'm not exactly sure. I see a practical route to blowing it up. Exactly. You know what I mean? Trades don't actually happen that often, right? And the problem for the Mets is that a lot of the guys that. I think you would look at as saying, well, here's where we need to change. They're all really cheap and under team control, right? You probably shouldn't get rid of them. 
And yeah, and tr- uh, trade them for like peanuts. Like when yeah, you, you'd be selling low right now. Like uh, people keep calling to trade, you know, Jeff McNeil, Dom Smith, like those guys, which like f- fair enough, maybe based on their performance, they don't deserve an automatic starting spot next year. I get it. But like, I don't think you're going to be very happy with the trade return on Jeff McNeil yeah. right now. You're going to get some teams like, you know, like low a reliever. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what are you getting at Jeff McNeil? I mean, look, he, he is, I think probably for most Mets fans and, and for me too, probably, you know, one of the, one of the top three or four people that I have the biggest frustration with. Yes. He might be at the very top of the list, quite honestly. Yes. Um, um, and not least because I don't, I don't think that he's reckoning with it the right way, which makes me concerned about his future ability. But at the same time, I think he makes like what, $2 million and he's arbitration eligible for the first time, which means he's going to make maybe $3 million. What are you going to get in exchange for Jeff McNeil at $3 million for this 2022 team? That's better than that. Jonathan I mean, like, VR, <laughs> which I mean, you know, they literally leaked that, that like they're talking about how there's going to be a big shakeup. Right. And the first, the first rumor we hear roster related rumor is that they're interested <laughs> in bringing back? VR yes. back, which <laughs> don't get me wrong. I like Jonathan VR. I think he was a really good player for the Mets for what they signed him for. Like, you know, he ended up being the starting third baseman for most of the year and he did fine. And, you know, I think that was great. And I have, Honestly, I'm fine with them bringing him back, but don't talk about how you're doing this big exactly. shakeup and then be like, we're bringing this same guy back again that we that exactly. we signed last year. And that's like that's sort of like. And I don't like I don't think that they actually had to say we're going to, you know, we're going to make these massive changes or, cha- you know, like they could have been more. Circumspect and thoughtful about how they presented what their off-season plan was going to be but partly it's because they don't know what their off-season plan i was gonna say i don't think they they don't have a presence into baseball (laughs) operations but but you know the the instead what they've done is they've managed to set themselves up for expectations of a massive overhaul that as you're describing I don't really see a mechanism for them to make a massive overhaul, right? You start to think about a ma- well, okay, well, actually, we kind of like to have Jonathan VR back because he's cheap and he did a really good job. Well, actually, we kind of like to have Jeff McNeil back because he's really cheap and he shouldn't be starting. But if we can get him 400 at bats instead of 700 at bats, actually, is kind of great. And well, if Dom Smith can go back to the bench and if there's a DH next year, maybe we should have him back too. And then pretty soon you're like, I'm sorry, who, who's not coming back next year. And then, and you realize you start to go through the lineup and you're like, oh, it's Conforto. It's basically Conforto. Yeah. Yeah. And the other free agents. I mean, maybe, you know, like we'll see about Baez. We'll see about Stroman. I still kind of think they're going to keep one of them just because I think that would be very bad for Steve Cohen. I don't see, unless he, replaced them with something some pretty big stuff you know steve cohen is not going to come out of this offseason with a team that is this minus stroman and bias right i think we can safely assume that that'd be a disaster (laughs) yeah that'd be a disaster right i mean but like so again what's going to be different about i we have the entire rotation from 2021 under contract you don't get rid of pitchers who are under contract we're going to keep Cindergard. 
Okay. So who's, who's not going to be here next year? Who's gone? Yeah. It's Conforto. Conforto. Yeah. Conforto. And, and in a weird way, that would feel seismic if it was just him. I, I, you know what I mean? I mean, I know that that's not what they mean. I feel like they are, they are sort of certainly hinting that they are planning to do more and bigger things. At the same time, if the only major shakeup thing or major exit was Conforto, man, that'd feel pretty big. It sounds weird, but it feel pretty big to me. Yeah, well, and now all the rumors too, or you know, people might just be making this up. Is now is uh, let's bring Beltran back. I'm sorry, but your oh, last two God. managers were oh, both rookie God. managers, and Strowman was fuming about the tro- this cheating scandal. He was very outspoken about it. How could Carlos Beltran, if Marcus Strowman is on that team next year, look him in the eye and be his manager, no, knowing? that Strowman basically wouldn't have any respect for him. What on earth is the rationale for giving Carlos, making Carlos Beltran the manager? There is like, I, I, it's, it's, it's nostalgia. That's the rationale that's, that's the fans it. are working with. But I, I think I actually heard somebody be like, well, look, Alex Cora got a second chance. AJ he had Hinch, experience. Probably, I was like, they won the world series. <laughs> Beltran hadn't managed a game. You get a second chance because you're a World Series winning manager who may have gotten caught up in something that his players had done. Not only was Carlos Beltran never been a manager before, the whole thing was his idea. <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Like, if if Carlos Beltran becomes the manager of the Mets, that would be an existential crisis for me. Like it would be an existential. It would be pretty bad. Me. Yeah. Again, but, um, like, what are you valuing as a team again, or what are your care? Where are you valuing as a character then? Like, listen, None, does it nothing. does it does it grind my gears that Carlos Beltran's the only guy that seems to have faced any consequences for the cheating scandal whatsoever? Yeah, a little bit. But like, does that mean that I want him to be the manager just because other guys got a second chance? No. No. No, I mean, I, I thought Mets fans were sort of flabbergasted about this the first time. Yeah. It's not like how many times do we need Carlos Beltran to step on our throat? Like, that's <laughs> enough. Enough. This is like like Nightmare on Elm Street. What are we doing here? No, he cannot be the manager. Forget it. You can have like my son. Take my nine-year-old son could do a better job managing the Mets next year than Carlos Beltran. Or at least I think the fan base would feel better about it than Carlos Beltran. I mean, that would be a disaster. I'm going to pray that that doesn't happen. I'm going to pray that that's just sort of something that's been burbling up, probably from some Yankee fan trying to troll us. Yeah, um, I think I think fans are just you not using their heads. And I, I don't think I would be shocked. I would be honestly shocked if Steve Cohen was that stupid. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 just, I just don't see it. I just you can't have a I mean, third rookie manager in a row when, when the past, I mean, they failed for different reasons, but at least give me somebody with some experience at this point. I'm actually, I'm actually, uh, you know, again, whenever I go into manager things or front office things, I am, I'm stipulating from the jump. I have no idea what I'm talking about, right? I don't, I don't know enough about these people's jobs or what makes them good at it. Um, all that being said, I really like Ron Washington. And I think Ron Washington would be a great manager for this particular Mets team. Ron Washington, unfortunately, seems to want to manage the Padres. Um, so I don't think that that's going to happen. And there may also be reasons why Ron Washington would be a terrible manager. But the way he seems to comport himself and the way he is described as working with the Braves 
um, both his personality, but also his um, um, meticulousness and attention to detail, particularly in the, in the fielding and running department. Um, I really like the sound of and sounded like the sort of thing that the Mets definitely need. Um, I have far less sense of what they really need when it comes to the front office. But my concern is that we're describing a huge amount of very big culture and leadership slots that need to be filled. And the odds of this particular Mets, you know, administration nailing it, you know, sort of having a clean sweep, probably not very high. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but, but we still got Jacob DeGrom. We still do have Jacob DeGrom and hopefully he will be healthy next year. Yeah. Um, and that will at least be one positive about the 2022 Mets right off the jump. I'm still just so upset we were robbed of like a historic season though. I'm like really you're mad because opti- you're all still stupidly optimistic like me too, right? Like you're pretty sure 2022 we're going to be really good. Yeah, of course. Of course, <laughs> always. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's Even though just there's in our no DNA. <laughs> reason to feel that way necessarily. We'll be there April 1st or whatever it is. Met hat on, ready to go. <laughs> ready to be heard again. Um, yeah. But yeah, Jacob DeGrom, like it's, it's fr- like, I'm, I'm so sad about it because like his hall of fame chances are like sliding before our eyes because like he, during his, basically during his peak, the peak of his powers, he's missed like a whole season's worth of games at at his peak because 2020 was half a season. And then this season was basically half a season because of his injury injuries, plural, I guess Um, his like Schrodinger's UCL or whatever it is. Um, So (laughs) that's what I should, that would be a good book title. Um, (laughs) Would be a good book title. (laughs) You know, it's, I think uh, I, I don't know how to feel about him in the sense that, He's, you know, this has been unusual for him, right? He's been a, an almost, he's been a very durable pitcher over the course of his career. Yes. Um, yeah. He has an easy delivery. Was the first thing I ever noticed about him was like, wow, he has a very non-violent, easy, gentle delivery. And then it goes 99. That's pretty good. Like, that's pretty incredible. He might, he might be something for a while. And, and just the general, like I watched Max Scherzer, right? And I don't, God, this is such a dumb Mets thing to say, but I I really do think he's got many years left. I really do. And so, you know, while the Hall of Fame thing is, you know, look, it's hard to make the Hall of Fame. I can't just, I can't believe I just said that. It is very hard to make the Hall of Fame, as you all know. And, uh, but I I do think that he has the the runway to do it still. Like I, I could see him pitching when he's 40. He certainly can. I think he like, thinks he's going to pitch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He definitely. You well, know, he's like, smart enough to like pitch with less stuff as he ages, I yes, think, too. Yes. Yes. I just, he's not going to stop unless his arm stops him, which, of course, is a possibility. But, but you know, there, there is some truth to the fact that, you know, he's, he's late bloomer in this regard. He doesn't have the same kind of miles on his arm that other people do. He's got an easy delivery. He's very, very conscious of his mechanics and his body. Um, you know, you could look at the way this season went as a blessing because he's so aware of his body that he was able. You, you could look at this as he lost three months, or you could look at it as he saved himself from losing eighteen months. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. he, he, he realized what was happening. He shut it down, 
And if he hadn't done that, we might not see him in 2022 either. And so, God, isn't that a stupidly optimistic Mets way of looking at things? Um, <laughs> I just rationalized away Jacob deGrom's lost second half of 2021 is a good thing. But I mean, you know, that's what that's well, what we that do. was also part of the reason why I think it was easier for me to check out this year because he wasn't there. Like he gave you a reason to tune in every five days and that was gone. And it just, it, it like the wind just was like completely out of their sails. I feel like. Yeah. I, feel, I mean, I hope that there would be a way for us to sort of capture what you just described in like a really elemental way, because when we talk about it, I think it is hard to, sort of capture or recall, you know, we, we know what it felt like to watch this dreary Mets team that just felt lifeless or just ordinary, you know, even just plain, just, just plain ordinary. Like they were just another team compared to those nights in the first half when DeGrom was pitching and literally the entire baseball world stopped and yeah. watched it. And every pitch was electric. Like I've, you know, there are very, very few moments in my long baseball life when a pitcher has frozen everyone like that. Like, you have to watch this guy. It's like Pedro, right? When Pedro yeah. was at his absolute peak, you stopped and watched him because it was like, this. I'm never going to see this guy again. And, and we had that guy, right? He was our guy. And that's, it's, that is an indescribably exciting thing we all felt it and that's another reason why i kind of feel like you got to give the players a little bit like it must have, must have been heartbreaking for them to lose that yeah you know what i mean it's like every player wants to be on the field for a perfect game right and you know the delight of that just to have that go out of your season you know yeah that's that's tough that's really hard you know there's um, this photo, I think it's from spring training, but it's one of my favorite pictures I've ever seen. It's Marcus Stroman watching yes. Jacob deGrom throw in the bullpen and he looks yeah. like a child uh-huh. on Christmas day. Like yeah. 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 that feeling of just like, and so like watching other pitchers, like watch deGrom and, you know, and obviously like Marcus Stroman is a very good pitcher in his own, in his own right. And he's, he's, he idolizes deGrom the same way it, it, we do yep. as yep. fans. It, it, you could feel that. The yeah. way they talked about him, the influence that it has, like, I just, we can't underrate um, not just having that on a team versus not having that on a team, because those are, that, that's, that's a big enough deal, but to go from having it to all of a sudden not having it when you need it the most, um, ah, that's hard. That's really, really hard. And it is the kind of thing that you only overcome you know, circling back to the, you know, the number one topic you only overcome if you have really special leadership through the top to bottom of your organization. And, and it it exposed a complete lack of leadership from top to bottom in the organization. When a transcendent player like that is suddenly, you know, like this giant sort of Captain America shield in front of you, you don't have it anymore. Now we see everything that's wrong with you. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just curious to see where they're going to find the places to fill it as we, you know, as we sort of go through the front office. Okay. Well, Sandy's still going to be there. Right. And the manager, uh, we don't know who that's going to be. All right. Well, the, the roster, all right. Well, the roster seems like it's probably going to be pretty similar. Um, so what's going to happen, you know? Um, 
where's the change going to come? Yeah. Or maybe the change is that Jacob deGrom is pitches six healthy months and it, and everybody else bounces back a little bit and Thor pitches and cookie pitches like he's able to. Well, that's always yeah. been the Mets MO is, um, just pray wait for, for better health. Yeah. Just hope yeah. It, like, yeah, wait for everything hope. returns to the mean. Yeah, right. like, oh, last year was a fluke that literally everybody had career awful years. Like, as long as they play a little better, we'll be fine. Like, there's it just never seems like they have a plan. It's just hope is their plan. Well, that's the thing. It's like that was the weird thing about that that Sandy press conference is that I almost feel like you could have come out of there thinking they're going to do a lot of they're going to they say they're going to do a lot of stuff. And then they're going to come out of this hoping that everybody just has bounced back years. That's where I'm slightly concerned we're going unless yeah. the bringing yeah. everyone back includes Marcus Stroman and, and Javi Baez. <laughs> um, Cause you know, like, I don't know where, where you, where you all feel about the roster because on the one hand, I do feel like they need to be making some pretty significant changes on the other hand. I also do feel like if DeGrom is healthy, Syndergaard is healthy, you bring back Stroman, you bring back Baez, you have a good manager. I mean, they always say they want to be Dodgers East, and I feel like to do that, you have to spend money. Like, you need to have, like, you know, Price obviously didn't work out for the Dodgers. So they go out and they get Max Scherzer or they get Trey Turner. And so it's like you – you need to be able to eat the bad contracts and still spend and not let that hinder you because you have this like Robinson Cano's contract is still in the books. Like you can't use that as an excuse. You just have to accept it and find a way to work around it. Like if you really want to be the Dodgers, that's what the Dodgers do. I think the way they handle Robinson Cano situation will be a very telling thing about how they see the team in 2022 and uh, about and you'll be our third baseman (laughs) and Steve Cohen's uh, ownership style, because um, like, I mean, again, you know, I'm not saying that Cano will that him being useless is an inevitability because it's not necessarily. Um, But if they I think that there's no harm in bringing him to spring training, you know, he's on the team. So bring him to spring training. But if the, if he looks bad and he looks washed, they should cut him. And if they don't, that's indicative of Wilpon era like style Metzig where they're like, well, he makes money. So we're going to keep him around because we mm-hmm. have to. Um, whereas I'm hoping that Steve Cohen will be a departure from that. Mentality. Yeah, so like the Dodgers, like, so I keep hearing the Dodgers East thing. And I'm always like, well, what does that mean? Right, because especially in the context of 2022, because part of what the Dodgers East thing needs is having a very deep and plentiful minor league farm system. Okay, so we're not going to have that in 2022. What does what does Dodgers East mean in 2022? Then in, te- in the context of the Mets on the field, right? And you guys are getting at that, right? Um, don't penny pinch. Um, and and Cano, I'm glad you brought him up because he's a very interesting case for how the Mets be. Mets B, Mets R, Mets enact being the Dodgers East. Because, you know, if you're the Dodgers East, to me, the way that you look at Robinson Cano, he's someone I have heretical feelings about. Um, I am one of the few people who thinks that, you know, who we really could have used this year? Robinson Cano. 
<laughs> like, if you look at Robinson Cano's numbers, when he's hitting and when he doesn't have a broken thumb, it's the same. Every single season, 17 seasons, he does the same season every single He had it in 2020. That's the weird thing. Everybody talks about him like he's washed. He was awesome in 2020. He actually he was, was, yeah, he was really good. He was, he yeah. Was terrific. He was, the, he hit the same thing that Robinson Cano hits every single season of his career. And so to me, when I look at Robinson Cano and I'm thinking about how the Mets are supposed to be the Dodgers East, I look at Roger, Robinson Cano as a free professional hitter. That's what he is. Who cares how much money he makes? You're the Mets. He's a free bat. If he turns into Albert Pujols for you, right, and has another Robinson Cano season, and he can give you 400 plate appearances and bat 300 like he always does or 310 like he actually always does and hit 20 home runs like he always does, he will be more than worth it. In fact, Lord knows we could have used Robinson Cano's 2020 season on this Mets team. We really, really could have. It would have spared us a lot of Jeff McNeil grounding into fielder's choices, oh, right? Yes. Like, think about that. Like, that's, I think, how Mets fans have to look at someone like Robinson Cano. Like, I understand there are a lot of reasons to be frustrated with him, but him not being good at hitting is not one of them. Like, that is not the reason to dislike Robinson Cano. So, like, to me, I would ask Mets fans, imagine if you had Robinson Cano's 2020 season instead of Jeff McNeil this year. And yeah. all of a sudden, you know, it, it changes the trajectory of your lineup. So, you know, with, if we're looking into 2022, look, Robinson Cano's there. If we have a DH, I assume we're going to have a DH. I realize it's preposterous that we aren't going to know this until they have to have their rosters built. But let's assume that there's a DH. There's no reason not to want to have Robinson Cano around. He's just, he's just a useful professional hitter. And the money that he's being paid, it's Steve Cohen's money. What do you care? The problem becomes if the Mets go into next year with Robinson Cano as their plan to start second base all year long, that's a problem. Yeah. That should yeah. not be. That is willpower, right? But if you sign Javi Baez and just have Robinson Cano around as, you know, someone who's just going to hit when you need him to hit, whenever you need him to hit. That's, yeah, like, you know, like, what if you could tell the Mets, like, hey, Mets, would, wouldn't it have been neat if you could have our pool holes to hit against, um, to, to, to get 300 bats this year? He would have been helpful. The Dodgers just pay the money. They yep. just pay the money. And, and, and I think that that's... Um, Mets fans sometimes take a look at every player we get or we have on our roster, no matter how much we pay them and sort of be like, okay, well, that guy's going to get 600 plate appearances and, you know, they're going to tie up all of second base. And I think we need to look at players like McNeil, like Dom Smith, like Robinson Cano as People, by virtue of Steve Cohen being so wealthy, they have the luxury of sort of overspending on guys like that. You actually only want to get 400 plate appearances in absolutely optimal scenarios for them to hit, right? Because that's what good teams do. Yeah. They always have a good hitter to come up, always. And we always seem to have Luis Guillorme. <laughs> right Fair, actually yep. not even this year he was hurt most of the year not yeah, even like, yeah jose peraza and jose peraza and you know those guys brandon jury really they did a surprise was a hero okay that's the thing about this year they were the only ones 
who really came through above what they should be expected. They actually did a really good job <laughs> with their little like, bench mob. Yeah, the, over but, the whole year, they said they were like SL Collective. The Mets were batting over 300 as a pinch hitter. Uh, oh, I mean, pinch hitter it, was their best position. In it was. I mean, it, you know, great. Um, but that tells you that, you know, we had a few too many people in the starting lineup who should have been pinch hitters, right? <laughs> and and that's the thing. It's like, you know, I guess one of that's the thing is when that's maybe the shorter way of saying this is when you're the Mets, Robinson Cano as a part-time starter, you know, specialist pinch hitter is how you be the Dodgers East is like, yes. he's just a guy yeah. you pull off the bench, you know, you're like, oh my God, they're down to their ninth guy off the bench and it's Robinson Cano. Now I get to get him <laughs> out. Like yeah. that's how you win. And so, you know, when Mets fans are sort of rolling their eyes at these players because they're thinking we're going to count on them to carry the team. No, no, no. Just think of Robinson Cano as just one more weapon, one more weapon that you can bring out because you can pay $10 million for someone who can only do one great thing. And if the Mets can have Cohen's money to approach team building that way, I can get excited about Billy Bean doing that, right? I yeah. can get excited about that, especially if they promise me no Trevor Bauer, yeah. you know, like stuff like that. Yeah. They should. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like Trevor Bauer wasn't hard to avoid. We all saw it coming. Like, what's the matter with you guys? Yeah. Thor tried to tell you. Yeah. yeah. Your old player tried to tell you. Yeah. Um, uh, I The last thing that we'll ask you about is, because um, we didn't talk too much about the book, which we should talk more yeah. about. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to know what it was like to write So Many Ways to Lose and sort of relive all the best and worst, I guess mostly worst, um, Mets moments throughout the franchise and whether like there needs to be an addendum to the book <laughs> like you talked about in your ESPN article for 2021. Well, it, uh, you know, the, the process is probably a lot like this. You know what I mean? Like the experience of going through excruciating Mets. Well, we just did it, right? We just spent, yeah. it, you know, an yeah. hour. Uh, it was, the experience was often a lot like this. The ones, they weren't quite as excruciating. They happened before my birth. Um, but it was really, really fun. I mean, and it was fun for, I think, one crystal clear reason, which was that I discovered when it came to the Mets no matter how good you thought a story was, no matter how colorful or detailed or insane or preposterous it was, there was always more. Always. <laughs> yep. And and it was it's like an onion. Yeah. And you know, it was just, you know, that what was that the um in Willy Wonka, the unlimited gobstopper? It's not unlimited. I can't remember the word, but like oh, there's yes, just yes. nothing. There's no way you can get to the center of this one. And that was really delightful for someone like me who just delights in silliness and weirdness and the hilarity of baseball and you know finds the Mets just this like you know seven decade and counting comedy act um that was really great so um and then the one example of a of a story that was really painful um I solved by just avoiding it entirely which was um the Beltron strikeout hmm. um which I did not rewatch to write the book. I have never rewatched. Um, I was at the game. Oh no! Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I was there. Oh. Um, so I, I, I saw it. In Linda person. and I were both at the So Taguchi game. Yes. Oh. Yeah, that was that was a tough ride home too. <laughs> that was um, awful. So you know, like, I didn't. 
I, I, I said that night, you know, we're like, you know, I was, I would never watch it again. And even when I, so I wrote a book in which there was an entire chapter basically built around Andy's catch and then subsequently that strikeout. And I didn't rewatch it even to write that chapter. I was just like, nope, 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 nope. I can't watch it. I just can't watch it. I compared it to Game of Thrones, like the Red Wedding. It was like, if you were in the pews for the Red Wedding, you don't go watch it again, right? You were there. <laughs> right, you, don't need you to were there. It. You, you, you experienced it. Yeah, you experienced it. You don't need to do that. So um, that one, I just sort of avoided completely. And the others, you know, I don't know. I guess some of the others that were, just weren't quite as painful because the hilarity of them you know, sort of pushed me through. That was how the book was, you know, like the whole thing was processing, right? Processing pain is sort of comedy. So <laughs> I, had to, like, make, I had to make myself laugh or, or, you know, or I felt like no one would read it. Um, it'd be too depressing. Um, and, you know, it's, once we got into my life on me being alive for things, it got maybe a little bit more painful, but mostly it was just, it was just a delightful experience. You see, just the amount of times I found myself laughing out loud at the things you'd read or the things you'd learn or someone would tell you, just, just make, make it all worth it. Well, again, that kind of goes back to our beginning conversation of just like the Mets of characters and personality, unlike the Yankees, like I'm sure the Yankees have some, but like, you know, they just, they make it fun. Like even like the early sixties Mets, like, you know, delightful. The, yeah. <laughs> delightful. I mean, you know, that's why one of the things I'm always saying is like, like, I, I don't know anyone who's, I mean, aside from Yankee fans or division rivals, like in Braves fans or something like, I don't know people who are like, ugh, I hate the Mets. Like, why would you hate the Mets? We're delightful. Yeah, you know we're what I mean? Harmless. Like, we don't yeah, win. Yeah, we're delightful. You know, like, I, I, there are people who just don't like the Yankees because they're the Yankees, not because they're a rival of the Yankees, not because they're a Mets fan. You could live in Seattle and be like, I don't like the Yankees why would you dislike the Mets and and that's that was one thing that definitely just came through in our history just going deep through it right back to the beginning you know back to Mrs. Payson Joan Whitney Payson our owner like just the the spirit of the team has always been about we're gonna have a great time and we're gonna do our best to win but we're probably not gonna so let's have a great time I had a guy talk to me recently um a, a guy who's on my soccer team that I play for and I have a Mets backpack and like, that's what I bring my stuff in every <laughs> week. And he said, Oh, you're a Mets fan. Where are you, are you from New York? I said, I'm from New Jersey. And he said, Oh, do, does that mean that you also like the Yankees? And I was like, Oh, you're very unfamiliar with this culture. Aren't you? <laughs> Wait, what? He asked you if you also like the Yankees. Yeah. I was like, Oh no, 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 <laughs> no, it does not work that way. No, no, I was sir. like, do you watch a lot of baseball? I don't think you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, something, only, something that a question you only get asked about a soccer pitch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was it was funny. I mean, he, he, he you could tell he like totally like the way I reacted to it. He, he was shocked the way I reacted to it. And you could you could tell he like totally asked the question in good faith. And that was like, oh, <laughs> I messed like, up. I made a mistake. Um, did you almost imply I was a Yankee fan? How dare you? How dare you? I'm <laughs> offended. Um, 
But uh, yeah, everyone should go pick up this book. I think you're writing, Devin, you do such a great job of capturing the psyche of Mets fans. And it's kind of like when I, especially when I read the ESPN piece, I was like, oh, here's someone who gets us. (laughs) And so I highly recommend to all the Mets fans out there to to buy this book um, and read it because it's, it really feels like, you know, you're talking to a friend. Well, even me and Allison were saying, we're like, Mets Twitter never agrees on anything. And they all agreed your article was very good. <laughs> oh, well, that's so great to hear. That's really <laughs> nice to hear. It's so inchoate out there. Like, it's hard to tell, you know. Um, and we are, we can be a grouchy bunch. Um, but the feedback was nice. And it's hard when you sort of are assigned the task of, I don't know, say speaking for a, a fan base, but just um, trying to put the emotional components of a team alongside the facts of it is you know so many x-rays of a season get written without that and it just feels like those those stories they're always just missing something yeah um and they don't feel lived in they just feel like an obituary um and so you know trying to get the history of the team down documented in a way that actually looks recognizably messy um i think is we deserve it, damn it, because our team is that fun. You know, we're not going to get the rings, so we deserve at least a good historical record. <laughs> we do. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, thank you for that endorsement. That's very kind of you. Yes, of course. Um, and thank you for writing this book, and thank you for, you know, putting this out there, because Mets fans do deserve it for yeah. everything we've been through. Um <laughs> Before we end the show this week, we will do walk-off wins like we do every week where each of us talks about something that is making us happy this week, baseball-related or otherwise. Devin Gordon, what is your walk-off win? Well, I live in Boston. I lived in New York for a really long time, but I live outside Boston now, and my walk-off win is we have had an incredibly perfect uh, New England week, and it's still rolling into the weekend, so that's my walk-off win. Perfect weather. That's awesome. We've been so lucky here, too. October is in in my very biased opinion probably my favorite month as far as like mm-hmm. weather and holidays and everything cuz Halloween's my favorite holiday and my birthday's 2 days before Halloween and so like I always celebrate my birthday in concert with Halloween and there's always costume party and it's just like I I love October and I love like cuz my daughter I, is doing the same thing she her birthday is 5 days before Halloween so we're having the same exact situation for her it's a Halloween birthday it's great love it it's favorite great. kind of birthday um, Linda Surovich, what is your walk-off win for this week? Well, now that we've spent a whole podcast talking about baseball, I'm happy hockey is back. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, right. I think I've talked about Henrik Lundqvist on this show um, many <laughs> times, um, but he's and it broke my heart when the Rangers bought him out. Then he had heart issues and he couldn't play. And then he had to retire because of his heart issues. And then I was very, very sad. And I've cried many, many tears, but now he's becoming an analyst for the Rangers. And he had his debut and I got to see Henrik again. And he, of course he was perfect at that because he's perfect at everything. (laughs) And the man literally does not have a flaw, but you know, I was just, you know, and the way the way it ended didn't seem right. Um, he never got a send off by the fans, and somebody who did so much for the it was like the their David Wright. It would be like if David mm-hmm. Wright never got a goodbye, and it just it, it just didn't sit right. And but now he's home, and I'm happy he's home, and I'm happy to see his beautiful face before 
the Rangers drive me crazy. <laughs> so that's how I walk off when it's Henrik Lundqvist. <laughs> that's awesome. I didn't know that he was becoming an analyst. That's great. I didn't either. Yeah, I didn't he know just that announced either. it. Yeah. yeah. He announced it before their first game. He's like, hey, I'm joining MSG. And it's like, wait, what? When? That huh? is awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So yes, I'm very happy about that. Love, love that for you. Um, I live, I live, I I don't know anything about hockey, but obviously I have lots of friends and I have relatives who are hockey fans and I live in Washington DC and when the um, Rangers played the Capitals I was actually out and I got on the Metro and there was like tons and tons of Caps jerseys and I remembered only because of Linda that the Rangers (laughs) and the Caps now have extremely bad blood and my uncle who's a huge Rangers fan texted me out of nowhere let's go Rangers and it's not the type of thing he would normally text me because like I don't really follow hockey but I I remembered I was like oh they are they must be playing the caps right now and that and all these caps fans around me on the metro I was like oh okay he's doing a little <laughs> bit of a troll uh, and so I texted he's him back texting every person in DC he knows <laughs> let's everyone, go rangers everyone, literally yeah. everybody <laughs> and so I texted him back let's go rangers um <laughs> and he I bet he was happy about that um so but he's uh, unfortunately he's also a Yankees fan but it's okay oh. I guess we're going to pass for that. Oh. Um you know my my family is a um a divided family between the Mets and Yankees. On my dad's side are Mets fans except for one aunt and uncle who are Yankees fans and then my mom was born and raised in the Bronx so her family are no. Yankees fans. Yeah. My mom's a Mets fan though. Uh she converted after she married my dad cuz uh you couldn't be married to my dad and not be a That Mets just fan, makes so. you all the more ma- admirable. All yes. it means you've you, well, you, I, you powered through a lot. Yes. I have both Yankees fans and Phillies fans in my family. My Oof. mom's from Philly. Oof. Yeah, yeah, I nothing, went to nothing redeeming about Philly. Yeah, <laughs> I went to University of Delaware for undergrad, and that is Delaware is Philly's it's Philly, territory. Yeah. Um, and so many of my close friends from college are Phillies fans, which is deeply unfortunate, but it is what yeah. it is. The two the two thousand nine World Series, the Yankees Phillies World Series, oh, was a literal awful, nightmare, nightmare for me because nightmare. I was living in Phillies territory, and there are a lot of like New York, New Jersey people who go to Delaware as well, um, and obviously they're all predominantly Yankees fans, and so it was just like a lot, like a lot of both fan, uh, both teams fan bases around me at the time, and I was like, I can't do this. I That's literally like locked nightmares. myself in my dorm for a week and pretended it wasn't happening. It, it didn't. Worst. Just, just no. let's keep, let's it keep pretending. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, there was no World Series. There was no World year. Series that year. It was canceled, unfortunately. No. Um, <laughs> but this is supposed to be a happy segment. Sorry, everyone. Um, I will go with, I will uh, say my walk-off win. Uh, my walk-off win is um, last weekend, um, a bunch of my friends came down to D.C. to visit, and we went to Snallygaster, which is the um, biggest, one of the biggest beer festivals on the East Coast. And it happens in D.C. every year. Um, and I've never, I had never been before. This is the first year that it's happened while I've been a DC resident. Cause obviously in 2020, mm-hmm. it did not occur due to COVID. Um, and so, and this year it's, it was at 50% capacity of what it normally is, which is wild to me as a person for whom this was <laughs> my first 
Ballygaster because it was <laughs> packed. And I was like, how is it usually twice as big as this? Like, this is giant. And I'm a regular, you know, beer festival goer. I enjoy, I love beer. I love beer festivals. And I, I've been to my fair share of them. And this was by far the biggest one I've been to. It was over 200 breweries were present, um, wow. including, um, yeah, 200 breweries wild. It was like, it's like a, basically like it takes up like three city blocks, like the entire thing. Um, it's, it's insane. Um, Say the name again, one more time. Snallygaster. Snallygaster. And Snallygaster is like a, it's a mythical, um, monster. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. It has the Snallygaster has like a Maryland like connection to it. I forget what it is. We, we read about it when my friends, my friends asked me about the name. They were like, why is it called that? And I looked into it and it's yeah, the Snallygaster is a monster. And so all so the merch has like monsters and dinosaurs on it. which oh. is great. So we have the nationals, in other words, but we could have had the Snallygasters. Yeah, which would have yeah. been way cooler, way cooler, <laughs> way cooler, way um, cooler. <laughs> but yeah, so I had an awesome time and I definitely plan to make this an annual thing. Um, some of the breweries that were there included um, my hometown brewery from where I'm from in New Jersey, which is wild. I didn't think that they would be there. Um, I thought it would be mostly like local places, but it's really from all over. It was from all over. And so Twin Elephant was there, which is my favorite brewery near my parents' house where I grew up. Um, and there was a Vermont brewery there called foam, which my brother lives in Burlington, Vermont. And so I've been to many of the breweries in his area, including foam. And I was like, Hey, I love you guys. Um, so it was, it was really fun and I had a great time and my friends all had a great time. And it was the first time we really had like guests over in mm -hmm. since we've lived in dc because like so much of like since we moved here it's basically been covid the whole time i mean it still is you know but like finally people are vaccinated and we can like hang out um so it's just really nice to have friends over like we never got we never did like a housewarming when we moved here or anything um so it was nice to like actually be able to have guests and have people stay um over so that was that was really it was just a really nice weekend so That's that is great. my walk-off win um, but Devin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, where can people find your book and where can people find you on social media and stuff and find your writing? So the book is, um, available online, wherever you prefer. And I, I always say, um, if you have an indie local indie bookstore, you prefer, um, use them first, but if, if you don't have that option, Amazon is, will do as well. They've got it. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Devin Gordon X because someone took all the Devin Gordon variations. <laughs> so you should follow Devin, uh, read his writing, read the book. Um, it's all really fabulous. You can follow um, Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and read all of our fantastic work that we do at Amazing Avenue. Um, and you can also follow the show on Twitter um, at A Pot of Their Own. You can email the show, aa.apotoftheirown at gmail.com. You can follow each of us on Twitter. I am at Petite PhD. Where are you, Linda? At Linda Sarovich. You should subscribe to the podcast, Amazing Avenue Audio, wherever you get, you get your podcasts from. Please rate and review the show. It really helps people find it. The original intro and outro music to this podcast is by Bunga. Let's go Mets. And don't forget, there is no crying in podcasting. Podcasting.